Uh, you can tell by the board that we're talking about the subject of shepherding, and we've said that um, shepherds have four primary things that they do with the people that God has entrusted to their care. They know their people. They know them by name. They know things about them. They feed their people. By this, I don't mean they're just teaching them leadership skills and how to get better at something. I mean they are doing things with them that deepen that person's souls. This is soul care. This is not uh, leadership development. And then they lead those people, the ones that they know and the ones that they feed. They take them places and finally they protect them. Uh, what, what is intimidating in a room like this with so many of y'all um, studying leadership and leading things uh, better than I do, it's, it's, it's intimidating to stand up here and talk to a place like College Church about leadership, so it might help if I try to distinguish it a little bit uh, from any other kind of leadership. It seems like we are in a paradox right now in leadership in the country. Two things are happening at the same time. One is there is an unprecedented flow of material on leadership. <laughs> There's more stuff out there right now than there's ever been in the history of at least this country, probably the world. It's a $50 billion a year industry, leadership development. Over 1,200 books published every year, brand new, with the word lead or leader in them. And that's just the ones with the word lead or leader in the title. The last two I bought in the month ago, Neither one of them had the word in the title, but both of them are of that genre. So that number is infinitely larger, but that's at least four new books every day on leadership. Over 57,000 books on Amazon alone that have the word lead or leader in them. So there's more stuff out there than ever before. But on the other hand, we are at a period where many are referring to this as a leadership crisis. The crisis, they say, is not that we have too few leaders. There are many of them. It's that we have the wrong kinds. So all I can figure is either <laughs> these wrong kind of leaders aren't reading all of this stuff or this stuff has a blind spot. And that's what I think it is. We've said before that all shepherds lead, but not all leaders are shepherds. Shepherding is different from leadership in that it is always done in the context of the other three, never on its own. The shepherd cannot lead whom he does not know. And yet, if you think about it, that happens in the corporate world all the time. The shepherd cannot lead whom she does not feed, whom she does not deepen in their soul, whom she does not protect either from themselves or from the corporation, from the expectations of the organization. Sometimes the shepherd has to stand in, and that is where the shepherd finds their authority to lead. 
When shepherds lead, it is never from their position. Many cases, they don't have a position. Because to shepherd is a function more than a position. When shepherds lead, they don't lead from their vision. The shepherd never sees the big picture, puts the dots together, sees further than other people around them can see. Because in many cases, the shepherd can't see further and doesn't see the big picture. In fact, Moses didn't see the big picture. He didn't know where he was going. I mean, he had never been to the promised land. He sure didn't know the way there. The next vision for Moses was the next watering hole. So the only thing he knew at any given point was that we have to get from here to there. But after that, I have no idea. I mean, it was an 11-day trip that took 40 years. The dude was lost. And yet, he shepherded those people. But leadership as a shepherd is not dependent upon the destination. It's dependent upon the relationships. When you're a shepherd, the people are the job. The people are the job. They're not players to get some grand utopian thing done. They are the job. So shepherding never begins by asking, how can I become a better leader? It begins by asking, what do the people need? Because whatever that is, I have to provide that. And as I do, I'm leading. Shepherds take people with them to places where their souls can thrive, but places where they would not go alone. They take them with them. They never point. They escort and the places where they take those people, according to Psalm 23, are places of still waters and good paths. And that's a different kind of leadership, I think. We're not talking about a leadership toward achievement. We're talking about leading people to a place where it is still and calm and tranquil and where the paths are straight and smooth and they are not being attacked or wandering off of it. And I started to wonder if this is really what people need, if this is really what they want, but they cannot find language for. I'm asking when people bounce from one thing to another, when they move from one purchase to another, from one idea to another, from one place to another, when they get caught in addictions and when they overcommit and overspend and overconsume and overwork, are they really craving still waters? 
they just don't know how to get it. And they think if they get all of this other stuff, they'll have it, only they never do. And I wonder when people bounce from religion to religion, when they invent their own religion, when they follow silly, stupid rules, when they bury themselves under shame, when they punish themselves for things they've done years ago, Are they really wanting innocence? As one said, a serial offender, tell me how I can get clean again. <laughs> Is what she wants good paths? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's quiet, so I can't tell whether you're listening or not. Do you see what I'm saying? So the shepherd always moves people from place to place because once sheep have found a place they like, they never move. So you're always trying to inspire trust while creating movement. If it's all about trust then it's too congenial. But if it's all about movement and accomplishment, then it's too performance-based. The shepherd can do both. She inspires trust while creating movement. It turns out that the way the shepherd does this is with her voice. Jesus said, The gatekeeper opens the gate and the sheep follow because they know the shepherd's voice. He calls them by name and he leads them out. And once he has led them out, they follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow the voice of a stranger, said Jesus. They will run away because they do not know the stranger's voice. Think for a moment about the power of Jesus' voice. When he finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed, it says in Matthew chapter 7, because he spoke as one having authority, not as the other scribes and teachers. When he spoke, there was something different about his voice. In John chapter 7, the temple guards went out to arrest him, and when they found him, they suddenly drew back. The Pharisees asked the guards, why didn't you arrest him? And the guards said, because never a man spoke like that man speaks. Have you ever asked yourself, what was it about his voice that commanded such attention? Effortlessly. It wasn't just that he said things better. It was that he said better things. And when he spoke, you understood him. And not only that, you understood other things by him. And sometimes when he spoke, you didn't understand him. You would think, what? What? 
And then he would leave. And you'd be left thinking, oh man, now I'm starting to get it. I think he was way ahead of me. I'm thinking at the time when the disciples said, well, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, well, neither one, but we must do the work of him who sent us while it is day for the time is coming when no one can work. Did you misunderstand the question? And yet, when he withdraws, <laughs> this thing inside you comes alive and you start to think, no, I said, no, I think he was way ahead of me and he understood perfectly what I was asking. And he was trying to bring me to another place. So I'm starting to wonder, what is it, these components that Jesus had in his voice? Was it just divine luck or is there some kind of thing that we might be involved in. I go back into Exodus. I start reading through Exodus again, and I'm paying attention to the times when Moses speaks. I notice a few tendencies, and so I'm going to draw those in the form of a Venn diagram, because in my world, people, everything is a Venn diagram. I told the first hour, I'm actually, I've actually bought a book that told me how to draw their stuff, but I haven't read it yet. The book's, called, the book's called Blah, Blah, Blah. It's a collection of my sermons, actually. So I'm going to put three circles here like this. Each one representing a component in Moses' voice when he spoke. Now, again, I don't want to suggest that if we just do these three things, because that's not true. You and I both know that people follow certain people for reasons we cannot explain. And we know that some people have an authority because God has anointed them for reasons we can't explain. If we could explain it, everyone would buy it. But we just don't know what that is. Still, I can't, while I can't tell you how to have that anointing, I can tell you how to lose it. And it is to lack one of these three components. Whenever Moses spoke, the words he said were true, and that matters. There was integrity. He defined reality as it was. God spoke to him, and he simply repeated it. It was genuine. It was simple. It was authentic. If Moses said, if you store the manna, it will rot, it rotted. If he said, don't gather on the Sabbath, it won't be there, it wasn't there. When he spoke to the rock, it bled water. So there was something authentic and genuine in Moses' voice. He wasn't creating reality. He was describing it as God spoke it to him. Our problem, by the way, is that while we say things that are true, we say other things too. And that, that's been the problem. In fact, if you're like me, we get emotional and then we start venting. And the more we vent, with only about 10% of that's true, 90%'s fodder. And we're just shouting things in order to find our voice in there somewhere. I don't picture Moses standing in front of the people saying, well, let me just think out loud here. 
if he did that, he probably had a layer of people in between him and the audience. <laughs> and he said everything to them. But what the audience heard was simple and true. The second phrase, for want of a better term, is the word spiritual. And what I mean by this is, he went up on a mountain frequently and he talked with God. And in those encounters, he learned things about God that other people did not know. So he wasn't just giving us a different angle on the same tired subjects everyone was talking about. He was talking about different things. And when he spoke, there was something in their souls that said, yes, yes, that is what matters. That's what I really care about. And he got these things because he was alone with God. The psalmist said, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his way known to them. Translation, he tells them things he don't tell everybody. And sometimes I think where we lose our voice is we don't know how to find this one. The last part, again, for want of a better word, I'm putting the word unselfish. Moses didn't even want the job. So he was never leading his people because it was better for him. He tried to get out many times. And the people knew that whenever he talked, he wasn't trying to build his resume. He was doing something only because it was good for the people. It was never about him. It was always about them, even when it was hard. And they could smell that. Well, last week, I was praying for the people that are in, like on my list, right? Like y'all were. And I was using the prayers of Paul, like I asked you to pray last week. And I found accidentally in Paul's prayers, almost these same components. When Paul prays in Philippians chapter one, that we would live pure and blameless lives and our lives would produce a fruit of righteousness. He's really talking about a trustworthy life. And when Paul says, I pray that you will come to know him better, that God will open the eyes of your heart so that you would know the hope to which you were called and so that you would be filled with spiritual wisdom. In Philippians, he said, knowledge and depth of insight. He's really describing this language that comes from a time alone with God. And in Ephesians chapter three, when Paul said, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love and that you would know this love in a way that surpasses knowledge. He was describing an unselfishness and it occurred to me when I read it that love has a tone all its own and when people hear it, they move toward it and until they hear it, they're not sure. So ask yourself, Your voice. How do people hear 
your voice. In the last two years, there's been an emphasis on self-expression. And while that's a very beautiful thing, the focus has been all about saying something well. But what's been lost somewhere in this is that whatever we say has an impact on people's souls. Have you ever stopped to wonder after you're through, after you hit send, what is the impact on the audience? What is the aroma in the room after you leave it? That's your voice. Your voice isn't what you tell them. It's what they think about after you leave. I started asking myself, what, um, how do we use this voice? And it occurred to me that as I watched Moses move with his people, he used it when he was with people and he used it when he was alone. When he was with people, he used his voice to inspire confidence in God. It was never just to get something done. He was always saying in so many words to the people, you can trust him. I know it doesn't seem like it right now. I know everything you're experiencing is to the contrary, but you can trust him. And I call this the ministry of presence. When he was present with the people, he inspired confidence in God. He wasn't just teaching them things. That's called class. He was moving their insides so they could trust him. And then there were those times when he was alone and he talked with God. And that I call the ministry of absence. So when he was with the people, he talked to the people about God. And when he was alone with God, he talked to God about the people. And what occurred to me was we probably need to develop our voice in both places because they actually feed each other. The more I am with people, the more I can represent them to God. And the more I am with God, the more I can represent him to the people. Does that make sense? I need to find my voice in both places. The assumption is, no, no, I need to find my voice. God knows my voice, Steve. I counter, God is not your therapist. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, do not utter hasty things with your mouth or out of your heart. Listen to it. 
for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So one does not gush into the presence of God and say all kinds of things hoping gold will come out. Just as people have a mind of their own, God has a mind of his own. Just as people don't believe everything I say, God may not believe everything I say, however passionate I am about it. So just as I need to find my voice with people, I need to become more familiar in the presence of God. Here's what I can understand. Why this is not taught in leadership today, even in Christian circles. If I put it to you like this, if the success of any organization is disproportionate to one person, what is the success of that one person disproportionate to? Do you hear what I'm asking? I mean, if a family, a team, an organization depends a lot on one person in it, then what does that one person depend a lot on? If we're right, we're saying it depends on their ability to navigate a conversation with people and an equal and commensurate conversation with God. And yet, if I step into a class on leadership today and say, what does my success as a leader depend upon? I will get nine to 12 principles of managing people and virtually nothing on how to negotiate with God. And if what we're saying is true, the success of that other person depends on my ability to do both of these so I'm not suggesting that people who are good at this don't have conversations with God. I'm simply suggesting that we too often leave him at the door. We pray and then we step into our ventures and do our jobs. But if Jesus is right, the Father is always working and I am working with him then we can actually have conversations with God while we're working in real time. Does that make sense? So I've asked, uh, there's a member in our church called, uh, uh, named Judy Crossman. Um, she does spiritual direction. Spiritual direction is largely, though not all, about structuring both conversations. So it's a two-year course. And I know that some of you uh, can't spend two years doing that. I know you're busy, um, and it's a lot of stuff. So I've asked Judy if she would take two years and compress it into five or six hours. She said, let me think about that. I said, are you done? Well, she took a, maybe two weeks, then called back, and she said, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. I think I can get two years worth of stuff, at least people need to know for now, so they can do this in real time into about five or six hours. And so 
if you're interested in that, uh, write the office or call the office or drop a note or something. I mean, you'd think I was more organized than this, but I'm not. Watch my head. Get hold of somebody out there in the office. And we will sign you up, and then we'll pick a date sometime in the future, a couple months from now, and then we'll, uh, we'll have that time. And that way, we're actually putting feet to something that I believe deeply in. I really do believe this is true. This is the blind spot I was referring to. The leadership material today lacks both the knowledge and the structure for getting in a room with God and negotiating a future. All right, let me go out with the text. Told you this was a talk, not a sermon. And this is the end of the sermon, even though I'm just getting to the text. Relax. In Exodus 33, that's why I picked it. Moses had a habit of pitching a tent just outside the camp, and the people knew it. Whenever Moses wanted to have a conversation with God, he'd go into that tent. And the people would stand at the face of their tent and they would watch him as he walked by. And he got into that tent and he would talk to God about the people he was leading. The people themselves never knew what he was saying. But they knew this. When he came out of that tent, there was a different look on his face. Even if you didn't, quote, believe much in that kind of stuff, you'd have to admit that man is different than he was a couple hours ago. It was that kind of power. On one particular day, Israel had sinned and worse than ever. They were always grumbling, but on this day, they had built a golden calf. And to make matters worse, they had named that calf Yahweh, God's personal name, and he was ticked. On that day when Moses went into that tent to apologize on behalf of his people, it was God who spoke first. And this is what he said. I am so angry. I could kill those people for this. In fact, I will, some of them. The ones I don't, you take with you and go on up to the place where I sent you, but I'm not going. I'm done. This rattled me one morning because every time God and Moses talked, it was always Moses who wanted to quit. Never God. Now it was God who wants to quit. And I got nervous. And Moses said to God, <laughs> with all humility and reverence and yet with a boldness, he said to God, please forgive my people. And if you don't forgive my people, then blot my name out of the book that you've written. And God said, well, go tell those people that they are stiff-necked, and if I went with them even for a minute, I might kill them. And Moses wouldn't back down. He said, you've been telling me to lead these people, but you have never told me who you're going to send with us. Come with us. 
there's a pause. And God says, all right. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses still won't back down. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here for what will make us different from all the other people of the earth. (laughs) And God, realizing that tenacity, said to Moses, I will go with you because I have pleasure in you and I know you by name. When I read that that morning, it occurred to me, Moses had found his voice with God. Not everybody can do that. But oh man, if there was somebody who could do that and they were doing it for you, 